Mark 7 is a great text, and, and here we come, and you, you guys know this about me already. I love looking at the story of Jesus. It, it is central, of course, central to who I am and central to who I want to be, who I want us to be. Uh, looking at Jesus and, and paying attention not only to what he says but what he does, it just feels like it shines light into my life, right? So we come to Mark 7, and we've got another one of these controversy passages, right? A place where there is controversy between Jesus and some people who were looking on from the outside, religious leaders or other people. Uh, we saw a lot of that earlier on in our study, like in Mark 2 and 3. Remember where they're frustrated with Jesus because his disciples aren't praying a certain way or they're doing things on the Sabbath or not doing the right things on the Sabbath or they're eating when they shouldn't be eating, whatever. We, we, we kind of walked through some of those controversy passages before. As we come to Mark 7 at the beginning, we see another one of these controversies pop up that has to do with hand washing, ritual hand washing for the sake of purity. And in fact, uh, here at the beginning of Mark 7, Mark will go on to tell us that the religious leaders had a whole system of rules for washing all kinds of things for the sake of avoiding defilement, right? And they look at Jesus and they go, hey, we have a problem with the fact that you and your disciples don't wash your hands the way we do and the way everybody kind of knows you're supposed to. And in one way, he responds the way he sort of responded in Mark 2 and 3. But in this particular text, Jesus will go one step further than he did earlier in this book. And then we have a very practical example, although a complicated example, of what Jesus is trying to do in helping us reframe the way we think about God's expectation, the way we think about the Old Testament law, the way we think about holiness and righteousness, and even the way we think about purity. And I want to say as we dive into it that this is not only relevant for the people that Jesus said it to originally, but it's very relevant for us today because we can fall into the same kinds of traditionalism that the Pharisees were falling into, right? And so we just want to be careful. And I, and I want to give you an example that kind of sets up the thinking here. Uh, when, uh, when I was growing up, I think many of you know, I, I had a single mom, and so we, we were always just kind of trying to make ends work. I don't, I don't know that my mom ever bought a new car when I was a kid. We always had, like, hand-me-down cars, you know what I'm talking about? So my first car was a really gross Chevy Monza. And then for a little while, my grandfather had given our family like a 1981 Volkswagen Rabbit. And then uh, the last couple of cars I remember us having were also things my grandpa had given us that he bought like at an auction. We had two different Ford Escorts uh, right around like 1987, 1989 Ford Escorts. And uh, they, they weren't awesome, right? The last one we had was white with a pink racing stripe. And that was just a trick, right? It was a trick. There was no racing in the Ford Escort. But I lived in... Uh, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, where sometimes in that day, the temperatures would get up to be 118, 120. And so there were certain rules that we learned as a, as a family about how you can operate a Chevy Monza or a Volkswagen Rabbit or a Ford Escort in Arizona. And, and uh, those just were part and parcel of my life. So when I met my wife, uh, she was from Nevada, and she had a Honda Civic that her family had bought new, and uh, I'd never ridden in a Honda Civic, I didn't know anything about it, but I remember the first time that we were driving together on a really hot day outside, so like 105 or 107 or whatever, and all of a sudden, I get in the car, and I, and I turned on the heater, right? I turned the heater on full blast, and I rolled down the windows all the way, right? And my wife's like, what are you doing? And I was like, this is the only way to keep the car from overheating, and she's like... That 
is patently false. And I was like, no, it's true. You got to turn on the heater all the way and you got to roll down the windows. Otherwise the car will overheat or the radiator will explode or the engine block will crack. The tires will fall off. There's like a million things that can happen. You have to turn on the, the air condi- or the, the heater full blast and roll down the windows. And she's like, who told you that? And I was like, um, I've been driving since I was 16. I've had a Chevy Monza. I've had two Ford Escorts. I've had a Volkswagen Rabbit. And I know how this has to be done. And she's like, but you've never ridden in a Honda Accord? And I was like, what difference does that make? And she goes, oh, it makes all the difference in the world, right? (laughs) And my eyes were opened, right? My eyes were opened in my early 20s to the fact, and I did not know this previously, but my eyes were opened because of a Honda Accord. My eyes were opened to the fact that you can actually run your air conditioner when it's 118 outside. It is possible to drive your car in a hot temperature and be comfortable and keep the windows rolled up. I did not know that was possible. And in fact, I had all kinds of rules in my life to keep my car, or any car for that matter, from overheating. But it wasn't until I rode in a Honda Accord that I realized my rules were very particular to a certain kind of car in a certain kind of place in a certain situation. Does that make sense? Riding in the Honda Accord recalibrated my thinking about what you have to do when you're driving in hot weather because not all cars are the same. That's what I learned driving. Now, by the way, I've driven a Honda Civic pretty much ever since because I don't want to have to roll down my windows, right? Jesus forces the Pharisees. He forces the religious leaders. He forces the people in Tyre and Sidon. He forces all of us in 2023 to recalibrate the way we think about holiness, to recalibrate the way we think about God's expectation, to recalibrate the way we think about our neighbors, to recalibrate the way we think about purity. He, he recalibrates in the same way that the Honda Accord forced me to rethink everything I knew about keeping cars from overheating. I had to change my paradigm because I I was confronted with new data. Jesus is new data that reframes our paradigms. And we certainly see that happening here in seven as well. So let's just look at this controversy a little bit and then we'll walk through it. It says, when the Pharisees uh, gathered to him with some of the scribes that had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? If you're the kind of person who takes notes, I would invite you to circle that phrase, the tradition of the elders, because what they're worried about is the compromise on the part of Jesus and his disciples with the tradition of the elders. There was a tradition that was being uh, not according, accorded to, right? They weren't paying attention to it. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They asked this question, and I want to be careful too, that as we think about the Pharisees and the scribes and the way they're asking the question, I think for many of us, it's easy to paint the Pharisees and the scribes as the villains in Bible stories. Does that make sense? And maybe that's the way you were raised, and maybe that's the way you were brought up, but it's easy to think like, oh, Jesus and his disciples are the good guys, and the Pharisees are the bad guys. I I need you to put that aside also, because the Pharisees are not bad guys. They're human beings, just like us, right? They have good moments and bad moments, but I will tell you that their focus on purity came out of a tradition, a rabbinical tradition, that was put in place for really good reasons, right? 
The rabbinical tradition and all of the writings that had been done that talked about washing your couches and washing your cups and your bowls and washing your hands, all of these things, the tradition of the elders, which we just circled, came out of a desire on the part of human beings to please God and to stay you know, ritually pure, to stay holy in God's eyes. God had given certain laws, but listen, they, they were able, like we can, they were able to look at the Old Testament and say, the Old Testament laws don't tell us about every possible circumstance. They don't speak to every situation. And the culture and the times are changing, and therefore the rabbis understood that they had to look at what God had said and try and untangle what's at the heart of what God is calling us to, and how do we maintain that as the culture changes and as times change and in situations that the Bible doesn't speak explicitly about. Does that make sense? So they're writing all of these additional rules, not because they love rules, but because they desperately wanted to be holy people. Because they desperately wanted to be pure people. When they look at Jesus and they see that he's not doing this, they are concerned initially. Now we understand something about their heart because of what Jesus says about them. But I want you to know that the rules and the traditions of the elders that the rabbis were writing, they were writing because they understood that there was a need for the followers of God to think about how the heart of God played out in different circumstances that weren't spoken to in the Bible. Does that make sense? We have to do the same thing. The Bible doesn't speak to every circumstance. It doesn't speak to every situation. Therefore, we have to be discerning in understanding what is at the heart of God's law. What does it say about who God is? What does it say about his expectation of us so that then we can translate that into practical rules and, and guidance for living our lives in 2023, which is a vastly different culture than the first century, right? We have to do the same process. That's, that's all the Pharisees and the leaders had done. The problem is that all of these rules about washing cups and bowls and all of these rules about washing your hands, all these things about purity had taken a turn in the lives of these particular leaders to become on par or equivalent with the law of God. And the moment that your tradition or your opinion or the moment that your perception of what is required in any given cultural situation becomes on par with what God has explicitly stated, then you're in, you're in trouble. So here's Jesus' response. And by the way, he doesn't first respond to their question about hand washing. He first talks about the condition of their hearts. So here's what they say. They say in verse five, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, and here he's quoting out of Isaiah 29. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, right? So first note here, that Jesus is telling us something about the condition of the heart of the people who are asking the question. I have just told you that there were rabbis and religious leaders who wrote a bunch of rules for purification and they did so from a good motive. They did so because they were trying to figure out how to incarnate God's law in their particular culture and that's a good thing. But what Jesus is also telling us is that these particular people in this particular time were asking their particular question because their hearts had drifted into traditionalism, which is dangerous. And we'll talk about that in just a second as well. Here's what Jesus says. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? This, by the way, is the only place in Mark where Jesus refers to them as hypocrites. He does that a lot in Matthew. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this is Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
Right, it's really interesting. He says, man, you guys have taken this too far. He's warning them out of this passage in Isaiah, he's warning them that it's possible to do religious looking things, but have your heart be nowhere near God. You're not hungry for God. You're not interested in God's intent or God's expectation. Instead, you've gotten to the place where you think that things like ritual hand washing are equivalent with holiness or that all God ever wanted was just to have a people who have clean pots and cups and bowls and couches and hands. Right? The danger, the danger here, by the way, is not with tradition. When Jesus quotes this, he's not saying tradition is wrong. In fact, there are lots of places in the Bible that say you are upholding the traditions that were passed to you. Tradition's not a problem, right? Because tradition is us figuring out how to follow God in any given day and age, right? The problem is not tradition, the problem is traditionalism. And traditionalism, and I'm taking this from the writings of uh, theologian Mark Strauss. Mark Strauss says really clearly, he says, traditionalism is, is when all of a sudden we have legalism, right? Legalism is when you start to treat the commandments of men like the commandments of God, right? Legalism is when you raise human opinion to the level of God's law and you make it equitable with righteousness or you make a requirement for salvation, the moment that you take human tradition and you lift it up to being equivalent of God's law, that's called legalism. The other problem with traditionalism is hypocrisy. And the way hypocrisy comes in is that you start to adhere to all of these traditions, but you actually miss the heart of what God really wanted. You miss the heart of who God really is. You miss the thing that the rule was actually pointing at. And Jesus will give a good example of that here in just a second. But, but what Jesus is saying to them is you have to be careful. Now, when he calls them hypocrites, I also want to make another distinction. When he calls them hypocrites, he's not damning them. Okay, so sometimes when we think about Pharisees, again, we think they're the villains. And when we hear Jesus say, you hypocrites, Isaiah talked about you. You would be people who honor God with your mouth, but your hearts are far from him because you worship as God's law, the rules of men, right? And it can almost feel like condemnation from the mouth of Jesus. I wanna tell you that this is not Jesus condemning these people. This is Jesus warning them, right? This is Jesus going, you don't have to be like this, right? You, you've gotten off track here. You've fallen into traditionalism. There's a legalism and there's also a hypocrisy about your insistence upon hand washing. But you can step away from that ledge, right? It is possible for you to recalibrate your thinking and to think differently. So Jesus isn't calling them hypocrites to say to them, I'm done with you. He's calling them hypocrites to wake them up. He's calling them hypocrites to open their eyes to the fact that this is not what God called them to. That's important for us as well because here in 2023, it's vitally important that we pay attention to the places where we have fallen into traditionalism. Places where we have started to treat our opinions or the opinions of others as equitable with the, with the heart of God, right? Places where sometimes we have adhered to Christian tradition or religion without paying attention to what God's actual intent or desire is, right? When Jesus calls them hypocrites, he's not saying I'm done with you, he's saying there's a better way to live and we wanna pay attention to that. He gives them this example here starting in verse nine. He said to them, you have a fine way of uh, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. So if you have a question here, by the way, 
If you have a question about whether or not Jesus is completely dismissing all of the Old Testament law, he absolutely isn't. In fact, it says in Matthew that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Right here in this very same text, he's telling them the hand-washing thing doesn't really get to the heart of God at all. But let me give you another example. He says, Moses has told you to honor your father and mother. The fact that Jesus refers to the Ten Commandments and the honoring of father and mother is a reminder to us and to them that Jesus isn't saying none of the Old Testament law is relevant. He's not throwing it all out. He thinks that law about honoring your father and mother is important and should be adhered to. But here's what he says practically about the way this works it out. He says, Moses said, verse 10, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you guys say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, or that is given to God. The idea of Corbin is that you could designate a part of your possession, a part of your money. Money wasn't as big of a deal as like the stuff you have, right? You could designate a part of that as sacred or set, a, set apart to God, right? You could say this stuff is Corbin and therefore it can't be touched for any other purpose. So if the money that you were supposed to be using or the possessions that you were supposed to be using to support your father and mother in their old age, you said, oh no, I've given that to the synagogue or I've given that to the church. I've given that to the worship of the Lord. It was a loophole, right? That the Pharisees encouraged because it meant more money for their churches. But it also meant that then the parents of those people who dedicated their money towards what they considered to be righteous things actually weren't using their money to support their elderly parents anymore. Jesus says, Moses said you should honor your father and mother, and if you don't, you should surely die. You say, if a man tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus uses this example of withholding care for parents through a righteous designation. He says, this is an example of how you can do a thing that looks spiritual, but actually contradicts the heart of God. You're not paying attention to the more important thing. Does God want us to contribute to the ongoing work of the church and the kingdom of God? He absolutely does. Does he want you to contradict his heart in order to accomplish that? Absolutely not. Do we need to do things that are criminal or unkind or uncompassionate or ungracious in order to achieve God's greater goal? Absolutely not. Because at the heart of what God wants from us, as Jesus says in Matthew 22, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You get those two right, everything else will sort itself out, right? So if there are places in our life where we have set aside the commandment of Jesus to love our neighbor and to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in order to accomplish some other sort of religious tradition, we've set aside the heart of God to accomplish the tradition of man. In this particular case, the religious leaders were saying, hey, why don't you set aside a portion of your inheritance as Corbin? And then you don't have to give it to mom and dad, right? When mom and dad say, hey, you're supposed to be taking care of me, you can say, I already gave that money to church. Jesus says, this is a perfect example of how you've adhered to your own rules and you've ignored the heart of God. Now that's only one example and it's a good one. But all throughout the Bible, we see this push by God to say, I don't care so much about your religious tradition. I don't care so much about your compliance with the, with the tradition of men as I do about a heart that aligns with my heart. Hosea chapter six, verse six, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
When we were studying Hosea, when we were studying Amos, you might remember this. God says, I hate, this is Amos 5.21. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So in the Old Testament, we hear the prophets declaring like, God doesn't care so much about you doing the religious thing that everybody says you're supposed to do. He cares about you loving other people. He cares about justice and mercy. Pay attention to God's heart when you're figuring out how to live like God in whatever generation you're in, right? Pay attention to God's heart. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says there, in one of the places where he calls Pharisees hypocrites, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is Matthew 23, 23. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I like Jesus' emphasis here. He's saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't tithe the dill and the mint and the cumin. You should do that too. But you don't want to do that to the neglect of the things that matter more, justice and mercy and righteousness. You see the way we're supposed to hold those things in tension? It doesn't mean that we don't contribute to the work of the kingdom of God, right? Those who were designating a portion of their, of their wealth, Corbin, that is to the service of God, were doing a good thing. But when they were doing it as a loophole to not care about other people well, that's where they lost the heart of God, right? Jesus looks at these people who are saying, why don't you wash your hands? And by the way, Anne, who read our scripture this morning and I were talking before the service, and she just wanted me to remind you that even after reading Mark 7, it's still a good idea for you guys to wash your hands, just a general rule of, you know, we're not, being, we're not being legalistic about it, Anne and I. We're just saying as a general rule, it's not a bad idea to wash your hands. Jesus says you've fallen into this trap. And then he goes on in 14. Back to Mark chapter 7. He goes on in 14 to speak to the purity issue. And this is radical here. So pay attention to the radical nature of this. In 14, Jesus says this. And by the way, now he stepped away from the Pharisees and the scribes and he's talking first to a larger crowd that's with him and then he talks specifically to his disciples. To the larger crowd, he says this. It says, he called the people to hear him again and he said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, at first you might think here in this explanation he's talking about excrement, right? It sounds a little bit like, hey, it's not what you eat that defiles you, it's the stuff that comes out of you that defiles you. And in fact, the people don't understand his illustration. He's doing two different things here. In the Matthew account, in Matthew 15, the disciples come to him and they're like, when you said that, you made the Pharisees really mad, Right? And Jesus goes, well, they didn't get what I was trying to say. In this particular text, he says, it's not what goes into you. He's saying, it's not, it's not your dirty hands that defile you, right? It's not the germs. It's not the blood. It's not the other things that might, you, you might have thought of in the Old Testament as being the things that would make you corrupted. That's not where real corruption lies, he's saying. It's not what goes into you, it's what comes out of you. And they don't quite get it. Verse 17, it says, when he'd entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And Mark gives us a little note here to say, thus he declared all foods clean. We'll read more about that in Acts. 
But here, Jesus is saying, it's not, it's not what you eat or how your hands are washed. It's not about all the ritual, ritual purification laws that you saw in the Old Testament. That's not really what God matter, what cares about. You can eat some corrupted food. You could eat pork, for instance, which would be outlandish to a Jewish audience. You could eat it, and it's just going to go in your stomach, and it's going to be expelled, and it's not going to do anything to your heart. But God cares about your heart. So in this illustration or in this parable, what Jesus is essentially saying is that your biggest issue is not dirty hands or unclean food, it's a defiled heart. And this is a radical shift from Old Testament law compliance. Jesus does this again and again. When he interacts with the woman with the issue of bleeding, we saw a couple of weeks ago, right? When he sits down to eat with, lep- with, with uh, tax collectors and sinners, when he touches lepers, Jesus is setting aside Old Testament purity rules again and again and again. Why? Because he's trying to show them and us that God cares about something deeper. He cares about what's going on in the heart of people, right? There's this radical shift. Here's what Jesus goes on to say, verse 20. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And in case the disciples were thinking about excrement, he goes further. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. He's saying it's possible that you could wash your hands again and again, that you could wash every cup and every bowl, that you could obey all the Old Testament purity laws, never interact with a Gentile, never interact with a, with a, a woman who was sick, never do any of these things that you're not allowed to do, and you still wouldn't be okay because your issue isn't about having dirty hands, it's about having a corrupted heart. And if you have any question, Jesus says, about whether or not your heart is defiled, look at the fruit, he says. Look at the fruit. Look at what's coming out of you. Right? Look at all the wickedness that comes out of you. You're so preoccupied with making sure your hands are washed, and all of that hand washing has done nothing for the brokenness of your heart. Now, Jesus is setting them up for their need for the gospel. He's saying to them, your heart is the thing that's busted, not your dirty hands. Right? It isn't about who you come into contact with. It's not about the germs exterior to you. Your problem is an internal problem. And their problem, by the way, is the same as our problem. Every person sitting in this room and every human being who's ever lived is busted. We're all broken. Our problem is not that we've run in the wrong circles or that we've thought the wrong things or said the wrong things. That doesn't mean we don't have to change our behavior in certain cases. But that change in behavior comes from a transformation of what's really broken in us, which is our heart. Jesus says, no, it's not the stuff that goes into you that makes you wicked. You're wicked from the inside out. And just look at the fruit to see it, right? Jesus is telling them that God cares about your heart. And to assess the status of your heart, look at what is being produced by your life. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says in the midst of a longer conversation, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God doesn't desire anymore to give us these laws of stone where it's just carved in, you know, and it's locked in. He says, I want to transform what's happening in the flesh of who they are, in the actual lived experience of who they are. I want them to be able to discern the truth of who I am in circumstances that that look a little different than their tradition, perhaps, right? And then we have a beautiful example of this, and we'll finish here this morning. Back to Mark chapter 7. 
In the, in the last sort of third of Mark chapter seven, then Jesus goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon. That's a historically, uh, like there's a lot of animosity between the, the Jewish people and the people of Tyre and Sidon. It's a Gentile area, but there are lots of places in the Bible that talk about Tyre and Sidon being judged or judge worthy. So Jesus now is in a Gentile area and he's there presumably to get a little bit of rest. It says he leaves the crowds and he moves away from you know, those people. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So his fame is spread even to Tyre and Sidon. It says, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. This is a woman, by the way, that is unclean in every category, right? So not only is she a woman, but she's a Gentile, right? She has a demon-possessed daughter. She's come uninvited, and she is, a, she is regionally from a place that has been historically antagonistic to the Jews, right? So you, you pick a category. This is a woman that Jesus should not be interacting with. She's unclean in every way and she comes and she falls down at his feet and she begs him to do something about her demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus' response, I'll just own this, Jesus' response is a little problematic and troubling at first glance. I don't know if you felt it when we read it on the screens. She says, can you cast this demon out of my daughter? We've seen Jesus cast demons out of people. We've seen Jesus heal other people's ailments. Like it seems so weird, but his initial answer is no. She says, can you cast the demon out of my daughter? And Jesus not only says no, he does it with what appears at first glance to be a racial slur. So just soak that up for a second, right? And if you do any amount of study on this particular text, you'll see people that will take what appears to be a racial slur and they'll run with that. There are people who say all kinds of crazy things about Jesus. Here's what I'll tell you. We know for a fact that this isn't a racial slur on the part of Jesus because we know who Jesus is. We know how Jesus feels about people, about his creation. We know how he feels about his sons and daughters. So we can rule that out. That's not what's happening here. But it is weird that when she asks for help, he doesn't just say, Absolutely, right? The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children were thought of as Israel, right? And it was a pretty common racial slur to refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now, interestingly here in this text, the word that's used for dogs is not the strongly racist term. It's more pointing toward, they didn't have household pets like we have, like you have dogs in your house probably. They didn't do that in the first century, but he is referring to something that's a little softer. It's more like a puppy, right? Or a baby dog. He says, we have to feed the children the bread at the table. Note also his use of the word bread because he is the bread, right? So that, that'll come up again and has come up already. Jesus says, I, I can't give bread to the dogs first. I got to feed the children first. And it can at first feel like he's being really unkind. But I think that what we see in Jesus, because we know who Jesus is and we know the heart of God, I think what Jesus is doing is he's being intentionally provocative, right? There's a lot that's lost in this particular section because we can't hear tone and we can't see facial expression. I think if we could hear tone and we could see facial expression, it would help us in this. It's the same reason why you probably should talk to your neighbor that you're frustrated about their trash cans instead of writing them an email, right? Jesus says to her, I gotta feed the children first. I can't throw the children's bread to the dogs. Jesus is indicating here Two things. Number one, I think he's being provocative in the same way that God was provocative with Abraham outside Sodom and Gomorrah or the way that God was provocative with Moses uh, when, when God had said he was going to destroy all the Israelites for their rebellion, right? He's, he's pulling an answer out here. 
But he looks at her and he's also indicating that there is a priority for Jesus which has to do with taking the gospel, taking the truth of who he is to Israel first. Now in the implication of what he says, it's very clear that the dogs, those who were not the children of Israel, they will still be fed. So Jesus says that right here in this statement. He goes, I just can't feed them first. It still feels insulting to our modern ear. But then this woman responds in a beautiful way. She doesn't respond by saying, are you calling me a dog? She doesn't respond by saying, how dare you? I thought you were a good guy. I think there's a little bit of a raised eyebrow here. And Jesus, she says, will you heal my demon-possessed daughter? And Jesus says, I don't know, will I? I mean, I'm supposed to give the bread to the children first. I can't be feeding the dogs first. And she comes back and she answers in a way that he commends her for her faith. She says this, yeah. You're right, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus says, you nailed it. Matthew 15, he praises her for this statement, right? She says, I understand that you're here to speak to Israel first, but I also understand the heart of God well enough to understand that there's enough for me too that you and your people might have referred to me and my people as dogs, but the God of the universe, his heart is big enough that he's got enough food for them and us. So can I have my crumbs, please, she says, right? And Jesus goes, ding, 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 ding. Yes, right? What's he been talking about in this entire chapter? We're so stuck in our rules. We're so stuck in our perceptions. We're so stuck in our opinions, even opinions that have been formulated for good reason, out of good culture or whatever, right? He says, you gotta throw that away and pay attention to the heart of God. Pay attention to my heart. Here is a woman who gives us a perfect example of what discipleship looks like. She comes in humility. She doesn't feel like she has to demand or insist on what she deserves. She's willing to admit that she's a Gentile, right? By the way, the vast majority of people sitting in this room also fall into that category, right? So this is great news for us, that there are crumbs, right? That God's intention is to feed all of his people. She demonstrates faith, humility, and discernment. She sees the heart of God, and she sees that God has a heart that is inclusive of all people. You guys, she's an example to us. She's an example to us of what real discipleship looks like. She has a willingness to trust the loving heart of God more than human reason or cultural tradition, right? She knows that the Jews don't mess with the Gentiles. She knows that male rabbis don't talk to women. She knows that a demon-possessed, a mother of a demon-possessed child is absolutely no-go for a Jewish rabbi, right? She knows there's all kinds of reasons for him to forbid her, and yet she pushes through that. Why? Because she's dependent on God's heart rather than the cultural norms. She's able to read God's heart rather than the standards of her day. And Jesus says, that's what I've been talking about all day. I've been telling people all day, it's not about how you wash your hands, it's about what's going on in your heart. It's not about your traditions, it's about knowing God. And this woman gets it right. She has a willingness to trust the loving heart of God more than human reason. She recognizes her own unworthiness and she's able to discern what God is doing even when it goes beyond her expectation or cultural imagination at the time. She's able to go beyond what everybody else would have said would work. Jesus himself says, I don't know, am I supposed to be here to help the Gentiles? And she goes, yeah, you are. And he goes, correct. I love this. I love that he's, 
He's reframing the way she sees herself, the way she sees God, the way she sees her world. I got into that Honda Accord and I realized that like I had these rules and they were rules that applied to every car. If it's hot, turn on the heater and roll down the windows. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck on the side of the road. And I thought those rules made sense, but it was because I'd only been in one kind of car. And I got into the Honda Accord and my understanding of what had to happen was blown up. When we get into the car with Jesus, just to use this illustration, he blows up our expectation. He blows up our understanding. And what we have to do to figure out how to navigate life as a disciple in 2023 is to come in faith, humility, and discernment, just like the woman at the end of this story, right? To see the heart of God. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to figure out how to apply this in our lives. There's great theory here. There's some interesting statements that are made. It's a beautiful story. But it's meaningless if we just take it as like, oh, now I know what it says in Mark 7. Will you please help us to hear your voice that says to us, if there are places where you've lost the heart of God and are clinging to your traditions, will you please look again at the heart of God? I pray that we take that serious. That we would draw near to you that we would understand that what you care about is to redeem and restore our defiled hearts rather than just making sure we keep our hands clean. Help us to see you in the midst of our circumstance. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.